After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd also like to extend 
uh, our very warm welcome to you here tonight at Church by the Bridge. My name's Des Smith. I'm one of the student ministers here. Uh, the senior minister, Paul Dale and his family, uh, just so you know, just to keep you up to date, uh, they haven't vanished. Uh, we haven't kind of murdered them and taken their inheritance. Uh, nothing as dramatic as that. They're just on holidays. Um, anyway, there you go. Uh, what a way to start. We're here tonight um, uh, as a, in the second of a four-part series that we're doing in Matthew's Gospel, or more precisely, uh, the first four chapters of Matthew. Um, the series is called The Return of the King, and as we saw last week, well, we can see why that's the case. Chapter 1 is all about the foretelling of the new King of Israel. But tonight we're looking uh, at a topic which is really developing on that. Uh, If you're a note taker, the sermon is entitled, Two Kings, One Story. And the reason for that is because tonight, rather than looking at the coming of the King, the coming of Jesus, we're looking about a power struggle between him and another king. Now, if you've been watching the news, or really if you've been even awake over the past month, you'll know that we here in Australia are no strangers to power struggles. We have seen two would-be rulers vie for political supremacy in the form, of course, of our now Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, and our now Leader of the Opposition, Tony Abbott. It's been a tough contest, and one that has been closely looked at in the media, in the papers, and in general conversation. And when we come to Matthew chapter 2, I think we see something in some ways similar. A power struggle between two would-be leaders. And the question is, who's going to win? And the answer that I think we see here in chapter 2, and as Matthew's gospel progresses, is that Jesus, definitely the underdog, is the ruler who will prevail. And the reason he'll prevail is that God will protect his chosen king, whatever the odds. That really is the point of this whole chapter that we've just had read. That God has chosen his king and that he will protect him no matter what the odds. So as we come to look at it over the next 20 minutes or so, uh, why don't I pray for us that we might uh, really hear this, not just as a bit of the Bible but as God speaking to us personally. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you've given us these words of Scripture, that you've recorded for us the events of the coming of your Son, your chosen King Jesus. And we pray that as we hear them tonight, we might hear them as they really are, the words of you, the living God, and that in hearing you speak, we might learn to obey you better. And in being more obedient to you, we might love you more. Amen. Well, as I said, Matthew chapter 1 introduced us to Israel's long-awaited king, Jesus Christ. But if Matthew chapter 1 was all you knew, if this was all you'd read, you'd never heard anything about Jesus before, you'd never been to a Christmas carol service, you'd never read a Christmas card, you could be forgiven for thinking that Israel didn't already have a king. There's no mention in Matthew chapter 1 of any king in Israel. There's just this vacuum and in Jesus comes. So when you then come to chapter 2 verse 1, which I invite you to to keep this chapter open in front of you, we'll be going through it tonight. 
you might be in for a bit of a shock. Let me read it to you. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. Well, hang on. It seems that Jesus has some competition. God has said that Jesus will be the king of Israel, and yet it seems there's already a king in Israel. It's a bit like a love story, a film, where you see a couple meet, they flirt, they fall in love. It's all beautiful, until halfway through, you realise that one of them is already married. It's a bit the same here. We've been reading chapter 1, seeing the new king come in, and all of a sudden, oh, there's a contender. And of course, as you read that, it makes you wonder. I wonder how an existing king might respond to the news that a competitor has come onto the scene. In fact, any first century reader reading this or hearing it read to them, when they heard the name King Herod, I think in particular would wonder how King Herod would respond to this. Because Herod has a bit of a history. It's helpful just to see a little bit of it to put it in context. King Herod, Herod the Great, and we'll see why that name is perhaps not the best title for him, was born in 73 BC. He was an Idumean, which means that he came from the country of Edom, which is in the southwest of the southeast of Israel, rather, and is Israel's traditional enemy. In 63 BC, when Herod was 10, the Roman Empire swept across Israel and conquered it. And when it did it, it appointed regional leaders, including Herod's dad, a guy called Antipater. Herod, with the family connections that he needed, quickly rose through the Roman ranks. And he became a military prefect in the northern part of Israel, a place called Galilee, and he, ma- and he massively impressed. He was a military genius. And so, when in 40 BC, when a nearby nation, the Parthians, invaded Syria and Israel in the north, Rome asked Herod to step up to the plate and stamp out the invasion. Well, he didn't disappoint. It only took him three years to do it. And in 37 BC, Herod was entitled the King of the Jews. He was an amazingly successful man. But like so many ancient kings, he was successful for a reason. He was experienced, he was ruthless, and he was absolutely paranoid. He was constantly suspicious of rulers or people who might come and take his place from him. That's just a matter of history. He is, if you like, an olden day Stalin, someone who will immediately stamp out or eliminate anyone who seems like they have the merest int, you know, kind of hint of talent and who might pose a threat to him. He was so paranoid that he ended up, well, effectively serially annihilating a large number of his own family, including one of his wives and two of his sons. So when we know that and we come here and we find out that Israel has an experienced, ruthless, paranoid king, when we've just been told that a new king is in town, Jesus We might be hoping that he maybe keeps his head down for a little bit. Maybe that God keeps this information a bit on the lowdown. Enter the Magi. Let me read to you verse 1 again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They kind of blow his cover. 
Now, we don't really know very much about who these magi are. They might be kings, the three kings of church tradition, but we don't really know that. The word could just as easily mean a wise man or probably more likely, but we're still not sure, just a magician. There might be three of them, but we don't know that. If you look at the text, it doesn't say there's three of them. It just says that they bring three gifts. There could have been one of them, or actually two of them, and maybe they just went halvesies in one of them. Maybe there were ten of them, and they were just really cheap. The fact is, we don't know a great deal about them. Now, at this point, let me just take a total diversion for one minute and just think about, isn't it important when you realise just a little fact like that, how important it is to actually read your Bible carefully? Sometimes I read things about my Bible and because I've heard so much from church history and the media or a Christmas card, I think I know what the Bible says without actually stopping to see what the Bible says. Sometimes we think quite ridiculous things about the Bible simply because we haven't taken the time to read it. Now, that's important for Christians. It's an important lesson just to read our Bibles carefully to make sure we're getting the message from the Word of God and not hallmark But particularly, I think, maybe if you're a visitor here tonight and maybe not a Christian, you're checking out Christianity and and maybe you found Christianity pretty repulsive the way you've had it presented to you. Well, I'd really want to ask you to check it out for yourself, to check out the original documents. It may be that the God you've rejected is simply a God who doesn't exist. You may not have actually rejected Jesus at all. And if that's you, I'd really ask you to to read this, come and talk to me afterwards or come and join our Simply Christianity course which has begun last week but it's not too late to join now, it's on a Monday night. It's a great opportunity to check out the source documents for yourself. But anyway, I digress. We don't know much about who the Magi are but we do know that they would have stood out like sore thumbs. Jerusalem wasn't this massive city like Sydney. It was a town probably about the size of Armadale about 20 to 25,000 people. These guys were foreigners from the east, coming into a small town which was extremely Jewish. Not many foreigners there. And they were astrologers, people who'd followed a star, in an extremely theologically conservative city. I can't imagine they snuck in unannounced. I imagine it would have been a little bit more Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Or perhaps, if you've been to Easter Convention, imagine a a sort of a combi load of hippies turning up and coming into the main auditorium and asking to see Philip Jensen because somewhere, somewhere, they've been told to go and talk to him. They would have caused a stir. And really, the rest of the story here is just the the response of Herod to this news. You can see there in 2 verse 3 that he's, well, he's understandably disturbed. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Well, disturbed's a bit of an understatement. The word could equally be translated as terrified or frightened. But he's no fool. You can see there in verses 4 to 5. He finds out whether Christ is to be born. He calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law to tell them where the Old Testament will foretell the Christ to be born. And it turns out it's in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is right under his nose. It's about nine k's southeast of Jerusalem. And yet, he's very clever. He doesn't just barge straight in and sack the city. Oh no, he gets the Magi to do his dirty work for them. He asks them to pinpoint where exactly in Bethlehem they'll be and he does it by getting on their good side. Look at verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, 
Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. But thankfully, God intervenes. Look at verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. But unfortunately, the danger isn't over because Herod will eventually get suspicious when the Magi don't return to him. And so God intervenes again. Look at verse 13. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And unsurprisingly, God is dead right. Herod does get suspicious. So suspicious, in fact, that he begins to take drastic action. Rather than, now that he's planned to get pinpoint information on where this particular child will be in Bethlehem, he takes the carpet bomb approach. And you can see that there in verse 16. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who are under two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. It's an atrocity. But it's only when the coast is clear, when Herod is actually dead, that they can return. And God intervenes yet again. Look at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. The key point of all this, the thing that Matthew is trying to really nail home to us as his readers, is that God has chosen his king and he will protect him at all costs. In some ways, it's, it's such a typically political story. It's a story that in politics has been repeated countless times. One rival tries to kill another and that other tries to escape. Pawns like the Magi get caught up in the political turmoil. But there's a critical twist here that really sets it apart from so many other political stories. Because these political rivals, in some ways, aren't really rivals at all. Because Jesus was never going to be any threat to Herod. And Herod coming after him was totally unnecessary. You see, Matthew 1 has already hinted at the fact that even though Jesus is the new king of Israel, he'll be a king of a totally different sort. He's not going to come there to rule Israel. He's going to come there to save people from their sins. You see, and, and the hint of that is really carried out, I think, as we go through the rest of Matthew. And we'll see a little bit of it in this series. That Jesus' primary kingship is over the human heart, not territories. So in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Satan tempts Jesus when he's an adult with control over all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus refuses him. In chapter 22... Jesus attempts to, they, uh, some Pharisees try to trick Jesus into being a traitor in a, in a question of whether or not you should pay taxes to Caesar. They expect him, as the revolutionary they think he might be, to tell people not to pay taxes to Caesar. And yet he complies. People should. In chapter 27, Jesus faces Pilate, admits to him point blank, yes, I am a king. 
but refuses to defend himself, but rather submits himself to the political authority of the Roman overlords and allows himself freely to be crucified. Jesus' life, when he was here on earth, was of a kingship not of nations, but of the human heart, of the conquest not of territories, but of sin. Now, how are we to think about that, having just come through a federal election, the most drawn out in recent history? It would be really easy, I think, just to leave it there for us, wouldn't it? Just to say, oh, well, Jesus during his life didn't really have any political impact and therefore Christians shouldn't have any political involvement either. Jesus just isn't a political king. He's not a political king in his first coming. But in his second coming, you couldn't get a more political figure than Jesus. We've just been going through Revelation. Let me read to you a bit from Revelation 19. It's, uh, in some ways, it's quite shocking in its violence. But just hear this with political ears. Revelation 19.11 I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is there any more political statement in the whole Bible? Jesus, the ascended Christ, is the king over all the nations. And when he returns, it will be a profoundly political event. So we can't weasel out of it that early, or that easy rather. What are we to do with politics? Well, I can't even begin to scratch the surface of a Christian political uh, theology tonight. But let me just give two sides of a very broad brush approach. On the one hand, I think we need to remember, as we stuck in between Jesus' first and second coming, that our main mission isn't to run countries. The mission of Christians isn't to make Christian nations. So we won't be aiming at having a theocracy, a government ruled entirely by religious people or priests. I don't think we'll also assume that having Christian laws are something we should necessarily strive for at all costs because we know that God will only rule totally over this earth on Jesus' return and we won't necessarily even vote for Christians just because they're Christians because again we know Jesus is the king it's only when he returns fully that the nations will bow down and for us to attempt to set up fully Christian countries in some ways is to jump the gun But on the other hand, there's something profoundly political about Christianity. Because we know who the king of this world really is. And we need to remind our rulers of their limited authority. We need to remind rulers who are so apt to forget that their authority is not their own. It's delegated to them. It's given them by Jesus 
the source of all authority. I think that's why it's so important for Christians to vote so that we can actually have a voice. I think it's important for Christians to call our government to account, to protest where necessary, and possibly even to be involved in acts of civil disobedience. And we must, of course, also expect to be misunderstood as Herod misunderstands Jesus. We can't be totally politically uninvolved. Jesus is a political figure. This chapter makes that clear. And it's not as simple as just vote one, Christian PM. But let's move on. Two kings we've seen. Two kings, but to my second point, just the one story. See, because this story, although it is definitely a story of political intrigue, is far more than that. Because this is a story in which God's hand has been guiding history in protecting his son. And you can see God's hand very clearly here all throughout the story. Maybe one of the most dramatic ways is the way that God uses dreams. Did you notice that? Did you notice how many dreams actually turn up in this chapter? God, via an angel or directly, appears in people's dreams four times. In 2 verse 12, he warns the Magi to get out of there. In 13, he tells Joseph to go to Egypt. In 19, he tells Joseph to come out of Egypt. And in 22, he tells Joseph to go to a particular part of Israel. Oh, God is very much and immediately involved. But he's involved in a much deeper way than just dreams, isn't he? There's a very clear sense here that Jesus' life is not just being dictated by ad hoc commandments from God who protects them just in the nick of time as they dodge bullets whizzing above their heads. No. There's a very clear sense here where Jesus is living out a script that has been written for centuries beforehand in the Old Testament. Do you see the way Matthew here looks back on and reflects on these events and sees not just God's hand in dreams, but God's hand in the Old Testament? So you see there in verse 5 and 6, In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Micah, prophesying 700 years before, testifies where the baby Jesus will be born. Or you can see there in verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Or you can see there in verse uh, 17 and 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they're no more. Verse 23. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. You can see here that Jesus' life, the events here, they're not just random. They're part of a larger story, a larger narrative that God is controlling here. But it's even deeper than that. You see, the picture we have here of Jesus is not someone who just happens to be foretold in the Old Testament, like a bit part player, but someone who is at the very centre of the Bible's revelation. The picture that Matthew here so skillfully portrays is of Jesus actually retracing the nation of Israel's steps, but retracing them in a way that they never did. 
where Israel was God's chosen people, called by God and yet mucking it up time and time and time again. Jesus is a new Israel, a new people for God, a new hope who retraces their steps and yet does it right. See, it's interesting, isn't it? So just take verse 15 for an example. Out of Egypt I called my son. What does that make you think of? makes you think of the Exodus. And when you look at Hosea, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Or when you look at Jeremiah 31. Well, you might, it might not be quite so familiar, but in the context, he's not talking about a person, Jeremiah. He's talking about the nation of Israel coming out of the exile. When you look at Micah, He's not just looking at a guy, he's looking at the leader of Israel. And you see that, it's really exciting. As you, as you look through these opening chapters of Matthew, you see this. Jesus is the new Israel, but where the old Israel fell, where the old people of God were disasters, Jesus never gives in to temptation. Think of Israel being called out of Egypt, passing through the water of the Red Sea, going into the desert for 40 years, and being called into the new kingdom of God in Canaan. You can't help but notice the parallels that Matthew's drawing here. As Jesus, when he comes out of here, and we'll see this in the next couple of weeks, passes through water in his baptism, goes into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, and then in 4 verse 17 begins to preach, the kingdom of heaven is near. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see the magnitude of who Jesus is here and how he's being presented? See, of course, it's not how the characters in this story actually experienced this. The characters in this story didn't have the benefit of actually reading Matthew's gospel. I'm sure they wish they had it. As far as they knew, they were just being knocked pillar to post as they got caught in the pincers of political kind of intrigue refugees being saved just at the nick of time by miraculous dreams, perhaps totally unaware of any bigger picture going on. And yet as Matthew sits back, looks at the story, by the inspiration of God, he sees a deeper picture, a deeper narrative, a story which sees Jesus not as some accident of history, but as God's king who will retrace the steps of his people and yet do it perfectly. And in doing it perfectly, come to save them and the nations and us from sin. And the good news is that that amazing story didn't stop with Jesus. Because if you remember, there were books after Matthew. There were even books after John. Books which record the history of a church which Jesus founded on the basis of his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. And that we are a part of that church and hence a part of Jesus' story. See, we're the product of Jesus retracing Israel's steps. Even though it doesn't always feel like that. I don't know if we always feel like we're, we're part of a bigger story. I don't think if we look at our lives, we necessarily see a pattern emerging. Sometimes it feels like our life is just a series of events, just one thing after another. Near misses, occasional windfalls. There doesn't seem to be any 
story or, or pattern to our lives. And yet the way Matthew treats this, the way the Bible treats it, gives us enormous comfort. Because as Christians, we can know that in the hurly-burly and uncertainty of life, there is a deeper narrative, a deeper story at the centre of our lives that is guiding us towards a goal, that we are part of that story which God himself is telling, the story of people coming to be conformed to the likeness of their Saviour, Jesus. That's the story we are part of. We need to reflect on that, I think, because we so often tell ourselves that we're part of some other story. We say, no, I'm part of the young, successful Anglo-Saxon business person in North Sydney story. Or I say, no, I'm part of the overseas travelling for two years story. Or I say, I'm part of the artistic uh, kind of uh, whatever story. I mean, you can name it. Do you see what we do? We, we so often identify ourselves with movements and narratives that are actually not the centre of our being. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with being a business person or going overseas even for two years. Being artistic, dare I say. But it's not the core of your story. That's not where the author of your life is really writing you. He wants to follow Jesus. And isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to hold out to our non-Christian friends and family? And if you're not a believer here in Jesus tonight, I, I'd really ask you to, to investigate this. Because we're a culture which has lost its story. The grand narratives that rushed in to replace the vacuum of the gospel, colonialism in the early years of this country, or nationalism in the time of the wars, or the political liberation movements of the 60s and 70s, those stories which people found a place for themselves in to give their life purpose and meaning something to head towards, they're all gone now. And that's why individualism is so important. Because we've got to write our own story. We've got to customise ourselves. We've got to forge our own way. And yet I think so often, so many of us find that so deeply, deeply unsatisfying. It seems to be just knit into the, the fabric of the human condition that to be part of something no bigger than yourself is a tragedy and a waste. That we were meant to be characters in a story with an author other than ourselves. Characters in a story in which there's something bigger than us going on. That's a wonderful thing to hold out to our friends, isn't it? To say that they can actually become characters in the story of the gospel. That Jesus has come. That Jesus has died for their sins. That he's been raised from the dead. That he rules on high. And that if they want to be written into one of his chapters, he's more than happy. That they might take part in the ultimate punchline of being made to look like him. That's a story bigger than any of us. And it's the only story being worth a part of. So often we tell people to confess their sins, to put down their swords and to confess their obedience to God. And that's right. But isn't it also true that as part of that we need to tell people to put down their pens Stop writing your own story.
give yourself over to the author of life, to God. Let him write it and let yourself enjoy it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, you are the author of life. And we thank you that as we see the Bible reflect on itself in some ways, Matthew reflect on these events, he doesn't just see random political intrigue, but rather Jesus is the fulfilment of a story that has been going on since time began. We thank you for including us in that. And we pray that for those of us here or those of our friends who feel lost, narrativeless, that they might see the goodness and the beauty of this story and lay down their arms, confess their sins and come to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.